Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We were just before we started this episode, uh, Kate and Jackie and I were discussing like, okay, what's today's episode going to be about? And it's sort of it's sort of a metaphor for I think where we are in the news right now, because for a lot of a lot of this calendar year, um, when we would sit down to talk about, uh, you know, kind of what we're going to talk about. The conversation kind of took care of itself, right? Because there's like one big issue. Beginning of the year, it was it was still basically COVID and the relief bill, and then for a long period of time, it it was you know infrastructure and reconciliation and that that whole kind of thing. But now it's 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 much less clear. You know, infrastructure bill got passed. I think everybody is kind of working on the assumption. That the reconciliation bill is passing, even though it might even go into you know the the first months of 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 twenty twenty two. Just this morning, we noticed that you know this is this is Joe Manchin is always on script, right? Things things happen in a way that comes out of a kind of like a Washington D.C. version of succession, right? That kind of that kind of uh, antic, vaguely surreal kind of thing. So, so apparently last night, Joe Manchin is at an event held by the Wall Street Journal, right? So he's talking to the home crowd, you might say. And uh, Manchin, from as best as Kate and I could, could figure out, he basically said the same stuff he has said, uh, you know, a hundred times. He'd prefer to put a pause, wait until 2022. Uh, inflation is the biggest thing. And, and you know, I don't know if we can pass this because of inflation. These are both things that he said a hundred times. But, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer has been saying, hey, we're, we're doing this before Christmas. That's the deadline. That's, that's a couple weeks from now, basically. Um, and so there's been a lot of chatter this morning about, you know, do, do these two trains that are, you know, kind of seemingly on a, on, a, on a point of collision, are the conductors on each train talking to each other? You know, do we know who? And, and, and we kind of came, uh, who knows? Who knows what Joe Manchin is talking about? Um, and it's so huge. It, it is so who knows that it's not even clear what there is to talk about. And we're not really going to spend any time talking about it because truly who knows? Either it's going to happen uh, by Christmas or near after, as Chuck Schumer says, or it won't. 
And, and, and there's kind of, and there's sort of no dangling threads uh, for Kate or I, or really any other, you know, a pundit to, to distinguish between the two. And that goes to a bigger story about the current moment, which is that everything is a, in a bit of chaos. I mean, maybe a lot of chaos. But it's all kind of in chaos, and it's not really clear what the what the uh, you know the unifying thread is that brings it all together. And that, for those of us who um, try to keep on top of the news, as as you know what our what our what our day job is, it's a little hard to put it all together. So, in any case, a couple things before we get started here. You know, the Jan sixth committee thing continues to go on, and. What we saw over the last few days, you know, Mark Meadows, who was, you know, kind of one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, you know, the uh, the, the the Tea Party group that started in uh, in in un, you know under President Obama in the House and kind of presaged Trumpism. It's Mark Meadows, who eventually became uh, his chief of staff. Jim Jordan, who you know, kind of. Trump's bestest friend ever in the house. He had a book out this uh, that came out like a week ago, Mark Meadows. And, you know, Meadows is since since uh, Trump left office, he's been kind of like, in a way, kind of like Trump's de facto spokesman, kind of hype man, you know, out of office. So he comes out with this book and one of the sort of the, the, you know, the juicy pieces in the book is that Trump actually tested positive for COVID before that debate with Joe Biden. Now, it was one of those quick tests and he first tested positive and then apparently later tested negative before the debate. Um, and I, I, I get the impression that once they got that negative, they stopped. They didn't want it. That was good enough for them and they didn't want any more, any more information. So anyway, that got that became kind of a, a bit of a, a stir. And, you know, publishers uh, publishers always want uh, stirs, even if it is kind of off message politically for the you know for the author. Uh, in any case, there was kind of blowback, and within a day or so, Mark Meadows is saying, "Oh yeah, fake news. My own book is fake news." And uh, yesterday, he you know he's been going back and forth with the committee about whether he's going to um, cooperate. And yesterday, he said, "Okay, done." I'm not cooperating. Now, quite possible this was always kind of where that was going to end up. But I think you have to figure that getting back into Trump's good graces was part of the, you know, part of the equation there. Um, who knows? So so that is going on. So probably uh, uh, Mark Meadows is going to get uh, also uh, indicted for criminal content, contempt, just like uh, Steve Bannon did. But the other thing is we found out that, you know, Bannon's trial he he got a Trump judge and Bannon's trial is set for, I believe, July of 2022. Now, th that kind of tells you that if, you know, to the extent that it, criminal contempt is going to kind of wrench anything free, it's not going to move that quickly. And it is 100% a given that if Republicans take back the House, that committee is going to be disbanded on like January 5th or whatever the day is that the new Congress comes in, you know, comes into session. So, uh, so we've got that. And then we've got, as, as you know, I've been reporting on the last few days, it seems like, uh, you know, COVID has more business with us 
We've got this Omicron variant thing uh, down in South Africa. Now, I want to give you a quick update because I have been I, I have been trying to follow as closely as I can and make sense of as we get the new information about this, you know, about this new variant, about this new mutated version of COVID, and is it going to take away a lot of the the protection of the vaccines? Is it going to throw us back to the beginning of twenty twenty? Uh, 2020, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Overnight and this morning, we actually got the first laboratory results trying to get a sense of how this version um, of the virus behaves relative to the vaccines. And so we got the first lab information. And the gist is this, against two mRNA shots. So basically, you know, what we've thought of as fully vaccinated, uh, the protection from in, from infection goes way down, like way down, not nothing, but way down against infection. The assumption is still it's pretty strong against, you know, severe disease, going to the hospital, dying, blah, 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 blah but way down. But, and this is, this is what came out of uh, a study or, you know, kind of lab experiments from Pfizer that was just uh, released this morning, but is consistent with a couple other uh, lab studies that came out last night, that if you have the booster, your protection against infection is as strong as two doses was for the original wild version of COVID, i.e. the one that the initial vaccines were designed against, the one that showed up in Wuhan almost two years ago. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff there. I, I have discussed it on the site. But the gist there is, if you are vaccinated, go get that booster. You really want to go get that booster. It's becoming clearer and clearer that to to be fully vaccinated now, with all that can mean, you need the booster. The two, and there's even a lot of jurisdictions now that are considering changing their definition to consider you fully vaccinated. That's now going to mean you had the third dose, the booster of it. Um, so anyway, that's where that is. The other, more broadly, I think the the news out of these studies is not great, but also not the worst case scenarios that I think were were you know seemed possible a week ago. So that's kind of where that is. And uh, with all that um, litany of terribles, let me remind you that in the non-terrible category, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Do you like to start your day with a healthy blend of coffee and doom scrolling? Well, kind of we've, the first, uh, first 12 minutes of the show has been doom scrolling. Uh, then you need coffee that gives you enough energy to fend off a wild horde of feral dweebs or whatever other obstacles you face. A Grady's Cold Cold brew kit makes it easy to brew up a super strong coffee concentrate. Of course, if you wake up feeling a little less ready to battle your enemies, you can also add a, always add a splash of water or milk or whatever to tame the caffeine. With Grady's, every batch you brew has infinite possibilities. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, co-host Kate Riga, what is... What is going on on Capitol Hill? So basically, Congress has been embroiled in all of the non-reconciliation bill priorities that they had to finish at some point in December or by the end of the year, you know, depending on the various timelines. So the big one that's been sucking up oxygen this week is they're dealing with the debt ceiling again, which if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same situation they were in in October Then Schumer and McConnell made a deal. McConnell decided to kind of 
back off the Republican stonewalling to allow them to temporarily deal with the debt ceiling and then kick this decision to December 3rd, which became December 15th because the Treasury Department said they basically had scrounged up a little more money to keep repaying our debts until then. So a lot of the dynamics that were present in that first debt ceiling fight are still present now, which are, you know, Democrats felt that this should be a bipartisan thing, that it, you know, they helped raise the debt ceiling under Trump, yada, yada, yada. They don't want to be unilaterally kind of responsible for raising the ceiling and then having Republicans come after them and attack ads. And then the Republican side is basically, we don't want to be, you know, we're not going to be part of this irresponsible, wanton government spending, blah, 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 blah. So that's where we've been. But now it's kind of come to the funniest possible compromise, which is basically they're going to do a carve out of the filibuster, a one time carve out so that Democrats can raise the debt ceiling by themselves. But in order to do that, at least 10 Republicans have to vote yes on basically allowing the one time carve out. So it's and and, yeah. and to be clear here, because I asked you this before we started. This is not the the Republicans agreeing not to filibuster it. They are actually changing the Senate's rules one time for only one time. You know, this is a one time offer. Uh, changing the Senate rules so that like Ted Cruz can't go rogue and filibuster even though most of the caucus doesn't want it. And and so and again, I just want to slow down on this one point because they are actually doing what has been talked about for basically the entirety of this of the last 12 months about, you know, do you do a, a carve out like a, do you do a carve out for voting rights? Do you do a carve out for you know, who knows, who knows what else? Or you do a one-time carve-out. So they're actually doing a carve-out and Mitch McConnell's on board for one time for the debt ceiling. Right. And I think that is what is so striking about it to me is that in a world where we haven't lived through the last 11 months and you were just given this headline, we're doing a carve-out for the debt ceiling, you know, your natural next thought would be, Sweet. Okay, so voting rights are next, right? And then probably gun legislation, maybe codifying abortion rights, you know, all that kind of stuff. And now you're just like, meh, nah. I mean, do you, it's just so more realistic now that we live in a world where Joe Manchin is totally okay with this carve out because Republicans are okay with it. Whereas a carve out to do any of the substantial legislative stuff that Democrats want to do would not be okay with him. And, and and has he been, I mean, I, I don't know if we're sort of inferring what he thinks. Has he been asked about this? Like, hey, this is, you know, a one-time carve-out for something that's really critical. Why can't we do a, why aren't you okay doing a one-time carve-out for voting rights? I have not really seen much, but the House only passed the bill that will kind of uh, set this into motion last night. So it's still a, a somewhat of a new development. Um, so this is okay. So this is still something maybe only in the last 48 hours, maybe give or take, or maybe 24 hours. I have no idea. Right. I haven't been, I've been deep in COVID. I mean, not literally, <laughs> hopefully not literally I'll have to quarantine myself. Yes. Um, um, but okay. So it's pretty new maybe not, a, not, not enough time to get the questions. Right. Okay. Um, got it. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a funny situation that the filibuster carve out that everyone's been clamoring for is, it's happening around the debt ceiling, a traditionally bipartisan exercise 
that once upon a time didn't suck up a million and a half. Well, not not only that, but happening when I mean, you know, I I, I I'm not able to keep up on every story, but I keep I keep up on the news in general, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it hasn't technically happened yet, but it looks like it. I mean, it, I think it will happen. That is part. It's just you know, like you say, we cover this stuff for a job and it's my god they've just been so kind of gunked up in this procedural morass which is hard to write about hard to read about hard to understand and moving at this agonizingly slow pace that i think is for normal people it kind of makes sense that you know the the core of the debate is around this kind of procedural legislative thing anyway it's not like they're you know fighting over the affordable care act or some kind of potentially existential legislation well and that that's that that i think is the um what brings together so much of our current politics is that this is what your government looks like on zero-sum terms and what i mean by that is you know for for me to win you have to lose and for you know vi- and vice versa or for you to have anything that is not bad i take that as a loss so for you democrats to prevent the country from uh, uh prevent the country for from going bankrupt you know uh, not fulfilling its 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 debt obligations that is a loss for me even if you were voting for it, even if you're giving me the 30 second ads basically in advance. Yep. Um, that that so so everything, the, these things that as you say are are really just technicalities. I mean, the government is not well, who knows, but hopefully the government is not going to refuse to pay its debt obligations. Somehow or another, it's gonna pay those obligations. It's just a matter of kind of, you know, spinning the Rubik's Cube around to see exactly what chain of events will allow that to happen and just zero sum. And that's what, so these kind of non-issues become titanic issues. Exactly. I mean, and the other thing in that same vein that Congress has been focusing on is this, you know, defense authorization bill, which again, I mean, it's an, it's an annual thing. Uh, Not like there aren't, you know, policy disagreements time to time, but it's just been like, I mean, within this, within this bill, but it's, you know, it's again, it's a, it's a must pass. It's the way the Pentagon is funded. And they've been fighting for weeks and not moving for weeks over, you know, various kind of policy disputes. And it's just the kind of thing that it's not. Is that true, though? Have there been? I mean, what I was thinking here is, as you were saying mm-hmm. this was, you know, we're, we're kind of everybody's is is breathing a sigh of relief because we have this agreement, seemingly have an agreement on the debt ceiling, which again is a sort of like a technical non-issue. Mm-hmm. It will happen. And yet a Pentagon authorization, which is an agreement to spend upwards of a trillion dollars on everything that the, that the Pentagon does, a lot of what the the uh, you know the intelligence agencies do, that that just kind of flies through almost like, oh, yeah, okay, that's, you know, we can all agree on that. But you're saying, I, again, I haven't followed this that closely, and it doesn't seem like there's been major disagreements, but what has been happening on that? Yeah, I mean, various kind of, the the price tag for one has come up a lot, and I think a lot more than it would have in the past, because people like, you know, Bernie Sanders, who wanted a $6 trillion reconciliation bill, is now being asked to just 
like you say, just, you know, scroll the old John Hancock on this and, and be okay with it, even though it's hugely expensive. We do it without a blink, you know, and there were various issues with like women being included in the draft was coming up a lot, which I thought was kind of funny because again, it's like, you know, 2021, here we are. Um, but yeah, it, it, so basically the House came up with a compromise bill. Um, they passed that. It ultimately kind of has more Republican support than Democrat support, which is also, I think, kind of a factor of where we are in our politics now that it's become less usual for Democrats just to kind of rubber stamp big spending on defense than it used to be. Um, right, right. But right. yeah, 60 year streak of passing that on time will remain unbroken. It looks like they'll pass it this week and it looks like they'll finish up the debt ceiling stuff probably early next week because of uh, just some of the procedural stuff that you got to get through. Right, right. And then Schumer says, we shall pass reconciliation by Christmas, which <laughs> we'll see. Now, have you bef- before this, this, these comments that Joe Manchin said, mm-hmm. uh, to the extent one can have a general impression, has the impression been that it will pass around Christmas a little, you know, kind of in that ballpark? Or people at this point just have no idea? I think no idea. I think it's like, a lot of how this process has been that you basically ask any member of the caucus and they're like, they're either, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it. Let's just pass it. Or, you know, months earlier in the process, it was like, we've got to iron this and this out and then we'll be good to go. But you've just got Joe Manchin going around throwing out phrases like strategic pause and bringing up concern about inflation again, which you know, as we've said, there is no connection between the reconciliation bill and inflation. I did the reporting on this. It just pays out too slowly to have any, you know, real immediate effect. And it's also just, what does a strategic pause mean in terms of inflation? Because it's the kind of thing where you can only really see like clear trends and really extrapolate from the data after years, you know, you need a big data set. So I have no idea what that means. And I don't know if like, if we have a one month dip in inflation is then he going to be like okay great let's let's go for it well the other part is that that generally speaking you know inflationary pressures in the economy are made up of expectations right. so to the extent that you said okay we're not going to spend 2 trillion dollars now we're going to put it off 6 months to kind of give inflate well it, if you're actually doing that um, by a lot of theories of how inflation works, that doesn't make any difference because you, you're already you're already pricing it in. I think I think as with most things about Mansion, he has either vague feelings or what his pals at dinner the previous night pumped him up on, and they get framed in these policy terms that really don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone, look, you could, you could consistently say, look, this is a big new direction for the federal government. It gets the federal government involved in a lot of new things. I don't want to do that. That's not my vision of where this country needs to go. Or you could say the federal government already has a ton of debt. I don't want to add new debt to the federal debt. Now, I would... I would disagree on a policy level with the first one. And the second one doesn't, uh, I would disagree with because I think there's, you know, 
pretty little evidence that that change in the in the federal debt really matters. But they're consistent. They they mean things. They line up with actual things, right? The strategic pause about inflation just doesn't line up with anything that's real. Even if you think inflation is a big issue right now, which is a whole other debate, um, you know, a lasting issue. So uh, yeah, that that's kind of like. Um, as is so often the case with Joe Manchin, this is a guy who really doesn't sweat a lot of policy details. And just and for most people, you know, for the guy at home yelling at the TV, right? He's he's watching Fox and he's getting upset of all the new things Tucker Carlson is telling him. It doesn't matter that that person doesn't doesn't kind of connect things up seriously in policy terms, but it matters with Joe Manchin because he everything has to get his agreement. But the level of thinking, the level of kind of connecting things up and making any sense isn't, isn't, isn't really that different. But here we are. And, you know, here we've been for the last, uh, the last 12 months of the, of the, you know, Joe Manchin hegemony. Yeah. I mean, the thing I'm wondering now is, does Schumer put the bill on the floor before Christmas and kind of force, force it? I mean, force Manchin to vote it down if he's going to vote it down. It's hard because it's so high risk, but they've also been giving Manchin months to move on this. And he essentially has been in the same place. He just, you know, he threw in inflation somewhat later in the game, but nothing has really changed about his sense of urgency to pass the bill. Yeah. And and I guess I don't know how much this is figuring into other people's calculus, but it's figuring into my calculus to the extent that my calculus means anything or exists that I, I think there is a, a, a dawning sense among a lot of people that not only did we already know just because of midterm election, you know, first midterm elections and stuff that that the Democrats were going to have a lot of problems. There's a real sense that kind of like the Democrats are going to also go into this election, the midterm election, just pretty unpopular, you know, with their president way underwater. And that means you're going to have a pretty bad result in the midterms. Um, and, and I think there's a sense that that is more baked in. And some of that is, you know, stuff about the economy, COVID, whatever, kind of that's where you are. And, and I think that has, to the extent that there's a political calculus, made people kind of think like, you know, okay, happens or doesn't happen, happens in February, March, like, does it matter that much? Because you're going to have a blowout in, in, in November 2022 anyway. I'm, I'm not saying that is actually going to happen, I, but I do think that there is that um, evol evolving just sense a lot of people have, and that's taken a little a bit of the feeling of urgency out of it. Because I think a couple months ago, People more thinking like, okay, you know, Biden's taken a hit after Afghanistan and, you know, we've had some kind of reverses on the economy and COVID, but we got to kind of shift, you know, shift the equation, shift the momentum, get this passed, start campaigning about it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And again, the mood I perceive, and the mood is not necessarily the reality, but the mood I perceive is like, okay, we're not going to change the conversation. The, the midterms are going to be a bloodbath and maybe start thinking about, you know, shifting it in term, you know, in time for 2024, which frankly is, that's a pattern. Often president has, party has a bad, bad midterm. And that not only doesn't mean the following election is bad for them, it can actually have the reverse effect. It gives president someone to run against. It sort of, you know, kind of sh shifts the equation. Uh, but in any case, that is 
that's where that is. And when is this reconciliation thing going to pass? I mean, I, I have no idea. Kate certainly has a better idea than I do. And she doesn't seem to have much idea either. And that's probably because the people up there don't yeah. even have much of an idea. I mean, and what you just said, I think is right. This this idea of kind of preemptive despair over the midterms and this like, well, nothing we can do. But it's just so deeply silly because I think we've seen that Congress is not going to that Democrats in Congress are not going to look at voting rights in any real way until reconciliation is done. And that's in part because this is a body that is freaking incapable of doing anything that doesn't have a deadline attached. And also because voting rights is going to be, you know, an uphill battle with a lot of pressure on people who so far have shown themselves to be not very uh, amenable to pressure. But and so reconciliation in that way, it's, it's an easier thing. It's basically done, right? They just need to freaking pass it. So they're going to want to do that first. But I mean, it's a, it's a dead horse by this point. If they keep pushing off voting rights slash never doing anything about it, it's just this <laughs> this existential shooting themselves in the foot where all the gerrymandered maps are going to be out there and it, it just making their their tasks so much harder. So it's, I mean, it's what you say, it's this feeling of preemptive despair, which absolutely I think is, is leaking down into their constituents. And then it's also just a refusal to, to give the old college try to like legislation they could pass to actually potentially make it easier for them when the midterms roll around. Right. Right. Okay. So should we do questions? Uh, Bobert. Oh, right. Bobert. <laughs> All right. 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 It's, I got, got ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So, okay. So, so there's this move. Okay. So we had, uh, what's, what's Bobert's first name? Again? Lauren. So, Lauren Bobert uh, said this, made these really kind of nasty comments about uh, Ilhan Omar, the representative from uh, Minnesota, calling her and her, her group the Jihad Squad and then making this joke about her being a suicide bomber. Yeah. Now, as I think everybody knows, Omar is a practicing Muslim who wears a hijab. So, you know, very identified as Muslim. So we, we get what this is all about. And there's a move now to uh, strip her of her committee assignments, which has already happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Paul Gosar for other, you know, for their, for their <laughs> own kind of equivalent things. But this time there's some there's some resistance, no resistance. Basically, the, the Democratic caucus does not seem on board in this case. And so, Kate, your your thinking is like, why? What, what's their problem? Yeah, I mean, I guess to some extent, I would say there has been some of this hesitation before kind of all the committee strippings. It It, it hasn't really been a, an instantaneous thing. And the reason for me, I think, why the hesitation seems stupid is I get I get that Democrats don't want to set this standard where you're stripping off people off committees for like being mean to Democrats. You know, I understand that. But I think keeping the bar at the level of directing violence at your colleague is one that is like sustainable uh, and consistent with what they've done so far. I don't know if you listen to the audio of the Bobert thing. She she basically said it um, in front of some kind of friendly crowd at like a, a, you know, a donor thing. And the framing of it was that she was, I think, in an elevator with Omar, but she was like, oh, she wasn't wearing a backpack, so I'm probably OK. Like it was just predicated on the idea that 
Bobert might have to defend herself against Omar, that Omar is a a, a threat, a, a suicide bomber, potentially, you know, and in Omar's response at a press conference, she actually played a voicemail of a death threat she got after Bobert's comments surfaced just as kind of an example of some of the vitriol that this kind of stuff sends her way. And I just don't think it's an unreasonable or hard to meet standard that you strip someone off a committee when they make their colleagues physically unsafe. And I think that this instance meets that standard. Yeah, I, I I don't necessarily disagree with that. It, to, to me, it's th- there's two issues. One is well, there's, there's there's really one issue in each of these cases. The Republican caucus has refused to exercise any discipline over the offending member and has actually embraced them. And you know they've become more popular. They've become like heroes, basically. So at a certain point, I think these just become sort of the Republican Party position, doing you know doing animes of killing other members of Congress and and calling your you know other members of Congress suicide bombers and stuff like that. And at at a certain point, I don't know, I don't know what that it it doesn't seem sustainable or accomplishing anything to have a new member be removed from their committees of oversight every few weeks. Again, it seems it seems to me better to focus on this is this is these are like Republican Party positions. You know, someone I saw someone say kind of like, well, but you know, if they if they represent a threat, you need to take their committee assignments. Th- taking their committee assignments is purely, I mean, from the standpoint of of threat protection is purely symbolic it doesn't doesn't do any doesn't do anything if anything most of these members i mean this just kind of shows you the the evolution of our politics in 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 recent years i think most of these members probably see it as uh you know what we sometimes call scut work right to kind of the 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 no fun obligation work that what you're really trying to do is is you know say nasty things and go on fox and stuff like that so it's I, for what she did, she should be censured by the House. Or, but I mean, that only has any, having, having only the opposition party do it, I, I just don't know what it accomplishes at this point. So to me, it's sort of like better to say kind of like, to focus on the fact that this is the Republican Party. This is the whole party. And, and not pretend some bar is being protected. Yeah, I guess I... I think they can do both. I think that Democrats should act swiftly and not kind of waste time on these vacillations. Should we, shouldn't we? Especially because at this point, they've already done it to two of them. I mean, they're going to get themselves in a weird situation of like, what violent threat is worse than the other violent threat? So I think at this point, for consistency's sake, and because I do think it's, you know, these people are by no means institutionalists, but I think it's embarrassing to to have to witness this vote and to be on TV getting stripped off your committees. I mean, I, I'm sure they, you know, they channel it into fundraising. Their base might get a rise out of it. I still think it's personally embarrassing. Um, so I think they should remove them. I absolutely think Democrats should run off the fact that Republicans wouldn't do anything about it. But I think Democrats just look weak and silly kind of sitting there being like, well, McCarthy won't. Of course he won't. Of course he won't. And you absolutely should link him to these most extreme elements in the party. But they're also your members that are being threatened. And they're basically all women of color. And I think for no other purpose than to show other people we 
care about protecting our members, especially the women of color who seem to come under constant violent attack from this element, I think is worth doing. Yeah, I understand. I, I, look, I, I think we we would agree on this, which is that it it is certainly not a good thing to um, have a whole like drawn out drama over yeah. it. Like do it or don't do it. Don't don't have like you know have it become an intra party drama. That certainly is not good, and that that makes you look silly. I think behind closed doors they should decide. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to kind of just do it today and be done with it, not draw it out, or we're not going to do it. And, 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 you know, kind of pursue my model for lack of a better word, but just choose one and do it and, and, and move on because anything, anything drawn out is silly. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's also been some, well, you know, if Republicans take back over, what if they do it to us? Like, yeah, they're gonna, if Republicans manage to take over the house, I have no doubt they're going to strip basically every prominent Democrat from their committees. But it's that's the same kind of circular logic as we can't get rid of the filibuster. Imagine what Mitch McConnell will do. He will also do it if it's in his best interest in the future. I mean, you can't you simply can't strategize based on what Republicans might do in the future, not least because Republicans have consistently shown themselves willing to do whatever's in in their favor, no matter of the norm it shreds on the way. So, I mean, that piece of it, I think is silly. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 again, I hear you. I mean, to me, it's, 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 it's more, um, I don't know, just let's not have it be a drama. Do one or the other yeah. and move on. You know, to the extent that it's 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 heading towards being a drama, uh, decide which one it is behind closed doors and 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 move on. Yep. Like we will with questions. Okay. So good. All really right. good segue. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. So a question from Brent. He says, thank you for coming to my <laughs> One of the big justifications for Trump fomenting a coup and trying to stay in power was to avoid a range of legal actions against him. There was a sense that he would quickly become mired in lawsuits, some of which could compromise his ability to run in 2024. It's been more than a year since the election. Uh, what, what have we seen and heard about the massive legal exposure and consequences Trump would supposedly face as soon as he left office. Um, I, you know, I, there's there are two or three cases uh, moving in motion in the state of New York. Uh, I think one in one criminal federal one, one state uh, potentially criminal one. I think criminal one. Those are there. I mean, ironically, the sort of the main things have have the main real exposures, whether or not they're, you know, exposures to criminal penalties have emerged from his effort to stay in office, right? I mean, if, if, uh, if, 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 if the question was, you know, he was doing all this stuff because he didn't want to, didn't want any, any legal vulnerability, the, the live legal vulnerabilities seem all to be tied to the final effort to stay in office. Those, those ones that I described are the big ones. In, in, in my mind, um, certainly less than I would have liked to have seen. But I think it's also true that that the big it has always been the case that the big things that the things that Trump is most guilty of are things that are not obviously violations of statute laws, right? Um, you know, both both things he was impeached for were obviously criminal in my mind, but that's where we are, right. 
All right. So in the is what it is category, remember that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 